Great. Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Nathan Fisher, one of the elders in this church, married to Mandy, and we have two little girls, one of whose name is Ruth, so I'm a little bit biased towards this book. Um, So if you're joining us for the first time, we're in the midst of a series through the Old Testament book of Ruth. And uh, this morning, we're coming to part three of this series, and we're actually looking at uh, scene two. So the book of Ruth kind of works as this kind of narrative, and there are some some key um, scenes within the book. And uh, Bates and Paul took us through scene one, and this morning we're looking at scene uh, two, which is the moment that Ruth uh, comes and meets Boaz. So I want to just remind us of where we are in the book and just take us through a brief glimpse of scene one. We saw at the beginning that the uh, the book of Ruth finds itself within the context of the time of the judges. Elimelech rejects God and in line with how the book of Judges describes the people of Israel, does what is right in his own eyes and takes his family away from uh, Bethlehem and Israel and takes them into the land of Moab. He then dies and both his sons die, leaving Naomi, um, Naomi Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and Ruth uh, widowed. And then we see last week Bates uh, took us through this profound moment of Ruth's declaration of love, this, this declaration of loyal love to Naomi, that she'll go with her in, and she'll pledge herself to her family, her people, and to her God. She then follows her back to Bethlehem. We see that the famine has risen, that bread is back in the house of bread, Bethlehem. And we find ourselves then in Ruth chapter 2 at the beginning of the barley harvest, which is probably somewhere around March or April. Uh, so Ollie's going to read for us. I don't know if the mic has been sorted. Otherwise, I mean, Ollie's got quite a voice, so... You can pull uh, Charles Spurgeon on us, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Pastor Apple. Okay, you guys just going to have to follow. Can you hear me all right? Okay. Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to him, Go, my So she set out, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me clean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one. But keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? You should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all 
that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted bread. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to clean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the shoes, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until the evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you mean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took her to So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken living or the dead. Naomi also said to him, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, cleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother in law. Read with um, such passion, I almost left you up here to preach. Cool. So <clears throat> we see that we are in scene two, this quite significant moment where kind of like the two key characters in this story meet. And uh, as we've said and as Bates described for us last week, is that the, the book of Ruth is a narrative type of book, and we find that this chapter is also a narrative. So there's, there's a lot of similarities to how kind of stories we would read and the structure of movie, movies that we would watch. There's essentially a setting, which is a people and a place. There is some kind of conflict or tension. There's a climax in the story, and then there's a resolution, which comes from that. And we see in Ruth chapter 2, the same pattern follows. In verse 1, we saw the setting, Ruth and Naomi in Bethlehem during the barley harvest. The tension, Ruth and Naomi are, are widows, and there's this grand question of how will they find protection and provision? The climax in verses 10 to 12, which becomes the center and the pivot of this entire chapter, and then from that climax, we see a resolution starting to be worked out in verses 14 to 22, and this is kind of a... Uh, you'll see as we go on, this is a little bit of a resolution within this chapter, but there's actually a grander resolution that God has planned for 
Ruth and Naomi. And there's a glimpse of it where Naomi describes Boaz as a family redeemer or kinsman redeemer. And we're going to see more of that in, uh, when we go through Ruth chapter 4, which Sarah will be uh, preaching on. But essentially, it is, it's a, a family redeemer is, is, can be described as a family member who can redeem what was lost. So there's this biblical idea of bringing these two things together. The family, there's a family connection, and there's a redemption, a redemptive role that they can play. And they can re- redeem that person's property, freedom, or even their name. And then we saw in verse 23 that there's a new setting which begins to come because of the resolution that has worked out. So we see some glimpses of the redemption that God has planned for Ruth and Naomi beginning to work themselves out in Ruth chapter 2. And I want to take us to what I think is the focus of this passage, and I think the main message that the writer was trying to portray, which is the climax. But before I do that, I want to just kind of lay out the setting for us a little bit. It's sometimes easy for us as we read these things, is just to kind of glance over it. And I, I found it so helpful in week one when Paul brought out the them and then question. Like, what is the them. Who are these people and what is the then? What is the context that we're actually looking at? So we saw in, in the earlier verses of chapter 2 that Naomi and Ruth are both widows. And from our own context, we can think of a widow and think that that's quite a desperate situation. But if you think of the context that they lived in, this was truly a desperate place. And we see that Ruth is not just a widow, but she's actually a foreigner. And in fact, in a sense, she's an enemy. She came from the land of Moab. And if you know the history between those two nations, Ruth is essentially an enemy of the people of Israel. And to be widowed in this period of uh, biblical history wasn't just to be left without a husband. To be widowed in this period was to be left without any level of protection and provision for your life. And then following the death of your husband, if you were widowed, your hope would be found in your sons and provision which would come through them. And we see in this story that Naomi lost lost both of these things. She lost both her husband and she lost both of her sons. And we see that Ruth then chooses actually to kind of put this on herself, to kind of forego the hope in a second husband as she clings to Naomi The word widow could essentially be described like this, a once married woman who has no means of support. So it's not just this kind of deeply uh, like emotional trauma that you're going through as you lose your husband and your sons, but actually you have no level of support or protection. Being a widow in this time was a deeply vulnerable space to be. We see when we look at biblical history that some Women in this time, um, widows, would put themselves into positions of slavery or even prostitution just to provide for themselves. So it is a dark, dark time to be a widow, and yet we see a powerful glimpse of the heart of God at work as we look at Ruth chapter 2, particularly directed towards Ruth, who was both a widow and a foreigner. And we see this just slips in line with the heart and the character of God. I want to take us quickly to Psalm 146. Look at the heart of God captured in this passage. It's from verse 5 to 9. It says, Blessed is is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, 
who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord upholds those, lifts up, sorry, those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Or Deuteronomy 10:18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Tim Keller uh, describes this almost as one of God's calling cards. He's like, this happens so much in the Old Testament where God describes himself like this, that it's almost as if you, if you ask God, who are you? He'll say, I am the one who executes justice for the oppressed and the vulnerable in society. And we see that there's a, there's a direct reflection of the heart of God in the outworkings of laws which he instituted for the protection and the caring of the vulnerable in society. And this is a direct outworking of his heart. And one of these key laws which we kind of saw this morning was, was the law of gleaning. The practice of gleaning that he instituted for the people of Israel. And we see this clearly in Deuteronomy 24, 19-22. It says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. And Adrian from Cedars earlier this year described this idea so beautifully for us. Just this, this thing of, of sowing in squares and reaping in circles. And it's, it's God instructing Israelite farmers not to squeeze everything they can get out of the crop that they've yielded for personal gain, but to leave a portion of it for the vulnerable in their society. That after they have harvested, the, the gleaners could come and take what God had provided for them. And this is what Ruth came to do at Boaz's farm. You can remember in, that, in, the, in the passage that Ruth goes to Naomi and says, please may I go and glean on the farm. And we see that this man, Boaz, a God-saturated man, that's kind of the way his name can be described, this God-saturated man, Boaz, is not only upholding this law of gleaning, he's not just allowing you know, widows to come and glean in his field, but he actually goes far beyond it. And through Boaz, as he does this, we see a glimpse of the heart of God. We see Boaz not only allowing Ruth to glean, but actually encouraging her to glean. Even ensuring that she's protected while she gleans. And this was really challenging for me. You know, it's like, not just, ah, oh, flip, you know, God's told me I must do this. I guess I have to put up with these people, but as long as they stay in their zone, they'll be fine. Boaz sees the gleaners in his field and he sees Ruth and he says, come and glean. I'll protect you while you glean. If you glean in someone else's field, you might be susceptible to, to people abusing you or I'll protect you. Come and glean in my field. Boaz, you see, goes even further. You see, when they're um, going and, and eating, I'm assuming it's like lunch or something, uh, while they're working, he says, come and eat with us. 
don't just take, you know, kind of like gleaning from the harvest, but come actually eat with us. And in that time, you know, with the workers there, there would be like, what, a widow? A widow coming to eat with us? A foreigner coming to eat with us? An enemy coming to eat with us? And Boaz says, yes, come and eat with us. We see the lavish provision of Boaz continuing as he actually instructs his reapers, so the people who are working for him, who are harvesting on his farm, he says, don't, don't just leave her to take kind of like the corners of the field, but actually allow her to take some of the prime crop. And then he begins and says, actually, you know what, maybe you should reap for her. Maybe you should gather some of these, this prime crop and drop it so that she can pick it up. And I'm sure in that moment they would say, but, but she's a widow. You know, she's a foreigner. She doesn't deserve to be treated like this. And Boaz says, reap for her. Drop it so she can pick it up. We see in verse 17 that this lavish provision of Boaz resulted in an ephah of barley, which is essentially 22 liters. It's about 14 kilograms. And uh, it's enough barley to make 620, 672 slices of bread. So we see this powerful thing of, of Ruth coming and she's not just picking up scraps for the day. She's hungry, she has no source of provisional protection and she's not just coming to a field and picking up a few scraps so she can get through the day. Through the provision of God in Boaz, she essentially has enough bread to last her for the next six months. 672 slices of bread. It's slices. That is the lavish provision and lavish protection on God. Remember the setting. We're widows. How will we find provision? How will we find protection? God's beginning to work through Boaz. So here we see the resolution beginning to be worked out. But I want to stop us at verse 10, which is Ruth's question and her response as she sees God's provision in her life. And I want to ask us, why has this foreigner found such favor? Why has the foreigner found such favor? Test yourself even. If you were reading through this chapter in Ruth at home, and you see this, this, this stunning glimpse of the favor of God upon her life, why has she found favor? And Ruth herself asks this question in verse 10. And, and as we read it, you'll begin to see the climax and the pivot of this chapter. So let's go to Ruth chapter 2, uh, verse 8 to 10. And Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right here behind the young woman working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. And look at Ruth's response. Ruth fell at his feet. These are Boaz's feet. Ruth fell at his feet, thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked, I am only a foreigner. So we see the climax in Ruth's question to Boaz as a response of what she has done to him. And as I was reading this, I was reminded, like, remember where Ruth has come from? Remember Bates' message last week, you know, this powerful declaration of loyal love. I think if I was Ruth in that moment, 
I think I would have been like, didn't you see what I did with Naomi? You're like, didn't God see what I did with Naomi? Surely I, I deserve what I'm being given. Like, finally, actually, these people have seen the type of love that I've given, and surely I deserve this, this provision that has been given to me. But we see that that is not Ruth's response. Ruth is a widow and a foreigner, and she doesn't demand kindness. In fact, she is deeply humbled when she does receive it. She is a humble woman, and we see that actually she's even made more humble as she receives grace or is treated graciously. So you see Ruth's profound question amidst the provision through Boaz, and then we see Boaz's response. From verse 10, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Boaz says, yes I, know, yes, I know, but I also know everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and your mother and your land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. So look at how Boaz answers the question. Uh, Ruth is asking, why have I found favor? I'm only a foreigner. Why have I found favor in your eyes? And Boaz responds. Boaz, in his response, reveals to us the roots of Ruth's actions in chapter 1, which actually weren't initially clear. He's taking us back to the declaration that she made to Naomi and unpacking it for us a little bit. And essentially what he's saying is that in that moment, you took refuge under the Father. That as you submitted your life to Naomi and to her God, you humbled yourself and you took refuge under the wings of the Father. Look at verse 12. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Boaz is essentially saying this. What really happened in that moment, as you made a declaration to Naomi, it wasn't just the declaration of loyal love, as amazing as that is. But remember her words. She submitted herself to God. She said, you, 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 I will be with you, with you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Essentially, Boaz is revealing Ruth's declaration being a conversion to God. It wasn't just an allegiance to Naomi, you know, making this commitment to this woman. But actually, she was submitting herself under the wings of the Father. She was, she was converting into Judaism. That's essentially what was happening. She was saying, your God will be my God. There's a shift in serving the gods of Moab to submitting to and finding refuge in the God of Israel. And at first glance, and I know it was for me when I read these verses, it kind of seems like, Boaz is saying, you know, I'm providing for you because you've earned that provision. Like, what you've done for Naomi um, means that I need to provide for you in this way, like a kind of employee-employer relationship. But I don't think that is what the writer is trying to portray, and I don't think that is what Boaz is saying. Verse 12 gives us a glimpse that it's because she sought refuge under God's wings. And it's fascinating because she's responding to the provision of Boaz. And Boaz is saying, you know what essentially is happening here? Is you took refuge under God. 
And because you took refuge under God, God is using me as an instrument to provide for you. We see this idea of being kind of under the wings of God uh, captured in Psalm 57 verse 1. It says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So we see Ruth, I mean, Boaz describes how Ruth took refuge under the wings of the Father and God responded with favor. Favor which was, which was portrayed through the provision of Boaz in her life. Boaz is an instrument of the favor of God. And it's quite amazing as you read through this chapter, you see all these, these little moments where it comes up to say, happen to. You know, they happen to go this way, and they happen to go this way, and then they happen to meet. And what's profound is it's actually the providence of God at work. It's not by chance that Ruth, you know, happened to go into the field of Boaz, and then it's not by chance that Boaz happened to come to the field that Ruth was gleaning in and meet him there, meet her there. It was the kindness and providence of God at work. Ruth has found favor in God the Father and his favor is being worked out through the instrument of Boaz. So the book of Ruth is, is actually flooded with just glimpses of the gospel. I mean, when you read through the book, it's quite hard not to see the, the gospel in it. And as I was preparing for this passage, I had to rein myself in a little bit because it's just so kind of, it's in your face. Um, and we had a, a preacher's workshop, and I wanted to kind of jump straight to, you know, the, oh, look, it's looking at the gospel, it's portraying the gospel, and it was helpful for others just to tell me, hey, you know, you need to unpack the them and the then. What is the actual context here before you uh, take it to the gospel? And it was quite profound to see that as you unpack that deeper, there's a much stronger to con connection to what God is wanting to say and point to in the gospel. So Ruth's question and Boaz's response is something... I believe we need to keep close, keep close to our hearts as believers because in it we find the truth of the gospel. We see that God will have mercy on anyone who humbles themselves like Ruth and takes refuge under his wings. So in this chapter we see a powerful glimpse of the favor of the Father for a foreigner, but we also see a shadow of this future favor a future favor which God would show and had shown to other foreigners. So in Ruth we see a favor for a foreigner, but we also see a glimpse towards favor for us foreigners. And Ruth's question in verse 10 is a question we all need to ask and something we regularly need to remind ourselves of. Why have we found favor in the Father? Why have we found provision, not just physical provision, but spiritual provision for the deepest spiritual need. Why have we found protection, eternal security in God? We sang it earlier. There's nothing that can take us out of the love of God. And not because we've earned it. This is one, wasn't why Ruth found favor in the eyes of Boaz and is not why we found favor. We find favor because of the wonder of the gospel. And I think as we take a closer look at Ruth, and specifically at chapter 2, we see in Ruth's, uh, in Ruth's context, we actually see a, a glimpse of our own reality. Some of the realities that Ruth faced, we see a glimpse of our own 
reality. And I know we uh, spent quite a long time in, in Ephesians, but we're going to go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, and Paul the Apostle actually unpacks some of this reality for us. He unpacks some of the reality of our own foreignness. So go to Ruth, oh, sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 4. Paul says this, And you were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that, that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in, in, the, in the book of Ruth, we looked at the setting, like where are they? Widowed. Ruth is a widow and a foreigner. Paul tells us here about our own setting and our own foreignness, that we were spiritually desolate. No means of spiritual provision and protection. All of us falling short of the glory of God. No hope in humanity, only sin and death. In fact, Paul here describes how we were enemies of God, that we were children of wrath. And we should receive the just punishment for our sins. And I think as we look at this passage and what Paul describes here, our question should be the same as Ruth. Why have we found favor? Why has God so lavishly poured out his favor on us? Utterly hopeless. Utterly helpless without Christ. And notice that our foreignness, which Paul describes, is not a foreignness of nation. It's not like we're just from another na nation, we're actually from another nature. That there's a heart within us that needs to change. Not just from another nation, but from another nature, and a, a nature of sin, spiritually dead. We see that we're described as sons of this world, not sons of light, belonging to the family of those who rebel against God. It wasn't just our nationality like it did, you know, with Ruth and Boaz, this, this Moabite and an Israelite. The separation wasn't just nationality. It was, for us, it's our very nature. And escaping this kind of hopeless space that we're in requires nothing short of new birth. We needed a new nature and we needed a new heart. And I want us to see... And the joy will come, but the state that we find ourselves in was far worse than the physical state of Ruth and Naomi. The provision that we needed wasn't just for food, but spiritual provision. It wasn't just barley that we needed to make bread, but we needed access to the bread of life. Not just barley to make bread, but access to Jesus, the bread of life. And I want us to note that our hopelessness and helplessness couldn't be solved by a farmer like Boaz. There's a provision that we required and protection that we needed that Boaz couldn't provide for us. Only God himself could rescue us. So I want to come and insert Ruth's question again. Why have we found favor? How do we apply this to our lives in the state that we've been? Why have we found favor Paul goes on in Ephesians 2. I want us to just see, look at the favor of the Father, which he's painted this kind of 
dark reality of where we are, what our setting is, who we were, sons of disobedience, and yet in steps the glory and the wonder of the favor of the Father. And Paul declares that this favor which is shown to us is all of grace. So Ephesians 2, 4-10, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, again, he goes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I, I pray that this morning, as we come, believers sitting in the room, that God would stun us afresh at the favor which he has shown to us in Christ. And I pray too, if you're in, in this room this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, I pray that by His Spirit He would open your eyes, perhaps for the first time, to the glory and the beauty of the Gospel declared by Paul here. We see this wondrous love of God displayed in the death of His Son for the very sinners who were enemies to Him, who rebelled against Him. And we see that God's mercy on, the, on these helpless people flows from his own loving heart, not done from anything that they have done to deserve it. We see Paul takes us kind of like to the valley of death on what we were, who we once were, and then lifts us back up into the beauty and the pinnacle of salvation and life in the heavenly places with Christ, that the dead are made new in Christ, given a new nature. We see this kind of powerful contrast between Boaz, the God-saturated man, who did for Ruth more than what the law required, and yet Jesus, God Emmanuel, not just God-saturated, but God himself coming to live on the earth, reversed what we deserved, placing himself on the cross so that we might receive what only he deserved. Enemies made sons. It's quite a powerful thing to think about that in, in the story of Ruth, God is the initiator of the favor and then he uses Boaz as the means through which he's going to work this out. But as we look at the text in Ephesians, God not, in, not only initiates the favor, but actually sends himself down, Jesus down, onto the earth to accomplish what he's initiated. That God, through Jesus, doesn't just provide for us in an earthly kind of way, which he actually does promise to. In Matthew 6, Jesus does promise to provide for our earthly needs, but he provides a, a deeper provision, a new heart and a new nature. So it's powerful to think that God, by his grace, not only offers us salvation. It's not just a favor to say, hey, here it is, but but through his son he secures it for us. So I want to just take us back to verses 8 and remember the question in our minds, why have we found favor? I'm trying to kind of drip feed some of, 
some of Ruth's attitude, some of her attitude towards favor that she's been given. And Paul answers it in kind of this kind of mountaintop moment within this passage on what God has done. In verse 8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul is saying we, the favor we've received, we have no reason to boast because we've received it. We should be like Ruth, humbled in the face of grace. We see grace coming for us, this amazing generosity of God poured out onto us. And it doesn't make us gloat because we didn't do anything to deserve it. In fact, it makes us deeply, deeply humble because we know we've done nothing to deserve it. The favor that we have found is all of grace. And I'm sure as you kind of hear that, it, it's, it's so counter to what culture wants to tell us. You know, it's like work hard so that you can earn what you deserve. Work hard and then you'll get something and you deserve what you get because you worked hard. And I want to just remind us that that kind of mentality of work hard so you can deserve is deadly when we're thinking about salvation. That kind of mentality is deadly when we think about salvation. The famous line which people think is in the Bible, you know, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. It's not true. Uh, and even as soon as there's a mixture of the smallest bit of works, you know, this is what I bring to the table of my salvation. Grace will be perverted and debased. Nobody is saved except for the unmerited grace of God. And this is the attitude of Ruth. And I believe it's some of what I feel like she could be teaching us this morning. Is a humble heart in the face of grace. A humble heart in the face of grace. She doesn't look back and say, well, you know, I received this, but look what I did. Did you see what I did to Naomi? You know, we look at that, that declaration and we think, wow, that's amazing. You know, if I did that, then of course I would deserve, you know, what God's given me. Ruth doesn't have that attitude. She doesn't even expect provision. She doesn't even expect to be able to glean, you know, in a, not, 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 not the amazing gifts, you know, that God has given us. She doesn't even expect to pick up some um, barley in a harvest because of the declaration that she's made. And I don't think that would be, if I'm honest, I don't think that's my attitude often. Often like, you know, actually I brought something here. You know, God deserves to give me something. I deserve something. God should give me something. That's not the attitude of Ruth. And I feel like some of her attitude is, is, should be instilled into us this morning. As we look again at the grace of what God has done for us, may it humble us deeply, realizing that we brought nothing to the table of our salvation. And yet, unlike Ruth, we found ourselves actually in a more desperate situation. In the reality of where we are, enemies of God. And yet we receive a grace which is so much more profound than the one that she received through Boaz. The unmerited favor and the love of God. So I want to just take a moment to challenge us this morning, and this is deeply challenging for me, is that if we're more stunned by the favor that Boaz showed to Ruth, then we're stunned by the favor that God has shown to us. There's a distortion in our view of what our salvation is, which 
which needs to change. If we're more stunned by the favor shown in Ruth chapter 2 than in Ephesians chapter 2, there's a distortion in our view of our salvation which needs to change. And I want to just test us a little bit. Perhaps we have a, a, a perverted view of our own previous state. You know, like we, it was bad before God, but it's nothing like a widow, you know, or a foreigner in, in that Old Testament time. You know, it was bad, but I would never want to be in their situation. Paul is telling us that our state was actually much, much worse. Much, much worse than being a widow or a foreigner in, in those biblical times. Or perhaps it's a perverted view of what we brought. It's like, thank, you know, thanks Nathan, I, I know what God's done in my life, but actually, you know, I've done quite a bit to get here. Like, I've worked hard to get here. And I deserve what God's given me. And I, uh, if I'm honest, I've definitely said that in the past. It's like, God, you know, you, know, you can actually, I think you can need to do some of, so a bit on your side. You know, I pulled my, my weights. I think you should pull some of yours. That this, this kind of attitude that God owes me a favor because of the work that I've done. But as we look at Ruth, I think Ruth could be a prime example you know, of the declaration she made. Surely God owes her. Or surely Boaz owes her. But that wasn't her attitude. Jonathan Edwards says, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And I pray that even just that reality would free some of us. Really, would pour freedom out onto our hearts. That we bring nothing to salvation. It's a free gift of God. Or perhaps there's a perverted view of what we have received. Like, you know, what's, what's the big fuss? You know, we look at, like, Boaz's provision for Ruth and we think, wow, that's amazing. But we look at what God has done for us and we think, oh, you know, it's nice, but, you know, I've heard it before and it's kind of getting a bit old. But, in fact, Paul tells us that the love and the favor that we've received in the Father is far, far greater than the love that Boaz showed to Ruth. The love we received in the Father is beyond comprehension. Again, test yourself. If you're more stunned by reading Ruth 2 than Ephesians 2, we need to ask God to do a deep work in our hearts and in our understanding of the gospel. We need to come back to Ruth's question in, in verse 10. Why has she found favor? And we need to ask God that through his word, like passages like Ephesians 2, and through his spirit, he would continue to open our eyes to the truth of that reality. To the wonder of the answer that we will find in his word. And it's amazing when you look at Paul in, the, in, in uh, the epistles that he's written, he often prays this prayer. And I was reminded of this uh, this week in, in elders, is that this isn't a work we do. You know, we can't, we, I'm not wanting you to sit here and think like, oh, I, I feel like, Somehow I see Ruth's favor shown to her is, is more glamorous than the one that God has shown to me in Ephesians 2. This shouldn't condemn us. In fact, it should direct us to pray and say, Father, there's a distortion here. Please come and help me. And it's the work God does. As we read his word, his spirit will open our eyes again and afresh. Some of us for the first time, some of us who have heard it hundreds of times, again to the beauty and the wonder of the favor of God in our lives. So believer this morning, like Ruth, why have we found favor in the Father? 
And if you're a non-believer this morning, you don't believe in Jesus, why is this favor available to you? So Boaz answers Ruth's question and Paul comes and answers the question for us. I want to read it again for us, Ephesians 2, 4-9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The favor of the Father is all of grace. It is a grace which was shown to Ruth as she submitted herself, herself under the wings of the Father. And it is a grace which is shown to us. It is the unmerited favor of the Father applied to us through the saving work of His Son through His death and resurrection. Why have we found favor in the sight of God? It is because God in Christ chose to set his love upon us. Why have we found favor? Because God in Christ chose to set his love upon us. Father God, we come again to the wonder and the beauty of the gospel, Father, and I pray by your Spirit that you would open our eyes to this amazing grace which you have shown us. I pray that you would gift us like you did, Ruth, with the ability to be humbled in the face of grace. As we see the favor of the Father before us, it would deeply humble us. And say, Father, why am I receiving your favor? Why have I received your favor? Because you chose to set your love upon us. Father, I pray for people in the room who feel uh, uh, chained or even bound up by works this legalistic mentality of we have to bring something in order for God to give us something. Father, free us. The freedom of the gospel that we bring nothing to the table of salvation but the sin which made us necessary. We thank you, Father, that you stepped in as we were enemies of you. You describe us as sons of disobedience, sons of wrath. Our allegiance was to Satan and not to you, and yet you stepped in pull out a heart of stone and you push in us a soft heart which is drawn towards you, bent towards you, your favor poured upon us. Nothing we've done can merit this, only you, Jesus. We thank you that you have provided so lavishly for us protection and provision under the wings of God the Father through the work of his Son, Jesus. Father, I want to pray for those of us this morning who don't believe in you. I pray that you would open their eyes afresh, new, for the first time, to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. I pray even now, if there is anyone in the room and you feel like God has, perhaps for the first time, you see a beauty that you've never seen before. love that you've never experienced, the grace that you've never felt, favor 
that you've never seen. I pray that God would open your eyes. And I pray even in this moment, I just want to create a moment for you, that you would, if you feel comfortable, lift your hand and just say, Yes, Father, that is me. I acknowledge that you worked in my eyes, in my eyes and opened them, worked on my heart and created a heart, made a hard heart new, fresh, soft. Father, won't you do that in our midst? As you did with Ruth, bring enemies and make them sons and daughters, family of the Father. Show us your love and your mercy and your favor. Lavish, lavish favor and love poured out upon us. We thank you, King. We praise you, King. Protect us, Father, bring blase. May it never be old news. May it always be a fresh reality, the wonder of your love and your favor. Why have we found favor in the Father? Because you, God, chose to set your love Okay. <laughs> 